All right, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, or you can follow along on the screen as it comes up. We're in week 6 of our series in the book of Genesis. We're focusing specifically on Genesis 1 to 11 in this series. Otherwise, we'll be doing it for two years. Um, But Genesis is presented to us as a story. It's a narrative of God's activity in the world, and it engages with our story. It, It talks about where we came from. It gives us our origin. It gives us our identity, who we are, but it also gives us a taste of our destiny, our future, where we are headed in this world. And Genesis 3 is a great example of these three three things. Where did we come from and why is the world the way it is? Who are we and where is God taking us? What is he doing about the way the world is? Chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis presented to us an ideal paradise in the Garden of Eden. Uh, humans were created, and we had these, uh, this set of harmonious relationships. Everything was going great. We had a perfect relationship with God. God came into the garden and, and interacted with the humans, and there was no fear, and there was no shame, and, and there was connection and communication and love between us and God. And we had a great relationship with each other. Adam and Eve came together as, as the first family, and they were told in the, scripture, in the scripture they were naked and felt no shame. And, and on the one hand, that was literal. They, they, they weren't scared of each other's bodies. They weren't ashamed of, of how they looked. But also, it, there was something deeper than that, that they had nothing to hide from each other. There was perfect intimacy there. There was no, you know, no battle of the sexes, no competition between the two of them. They were perfectly uh, harmonious relationship. And we also had a, a harmonious relationship with creation itself, the, the way the earth worked and we interacted with it. It was fruitful and abundant and safe and provided all the needs of humankind. But then came chapter three. We started chapter three last week with the first seven verses. And, uh, and it kind of tells us why the world is the way it is now. It's kind of like that great line, in the classic TV show, The Office. Regional manager Michael Scott says to his arch nemesis, Toby Flenderson, why are you the way that you are? Honestly, every time I try to do something fun or exciting, you make it not that way. And it's the same question I want to ask of this world sometimes. Every time I try to do something fun or exciting, everything's just rebelling against me and fighting back, and the world just doesn't work the way it should anymore. If you've ever been in a moment of frustration, if you've ever saved up for three years to take your kids to Disneyland, and you get there, and the whole time it's a nightmare, why are you the way that you are? Because things just don't work the way we don't have the harmony we once had in the garden. There's brokenness and division because of sin. Genesis gives us the beginning of an answer as to why the world is the way it is, why relationships are the way we are. We see the collapse of God's good world and an unraveling of those harmonious relationships that humans once experienced. So last week, in the first first half of chapter 3, we looked at the nature of temptation. We highlighted how humans have a tendency to seek wisdom apart from God's provision, to do what is right in our own eyes instead of trusting in what God has for us and for his goodness. And in doing so, each one of us, you and I included, have taken and eaten the proverbial uh, forbidden fruit, and we have experienced the natural and and, and spiritual consequences of our actions. 
And so today we continue on, starting in verse 8, looking at the aftermath of the first sin, how the humans and how God respond to it, but also how God reveals his plan to redeem the world from sin. So lots of scripture to go through today. I'm going to do my best to stay tight with time, but we'll see how it goes. Genesis 3, starting in verse 8. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God said. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. It's a sad scene. We should actually be profoundly sad as we read this section of scripture. Relationships are collapsing before our eyes. Adam and Eve run and hide among the trees. They hide from God instead of embracing his presence as he comes to walk with them. They've already hidden from each other, making clothing out of leaves to to hide their nakedness and their shame from each other. Now they're hiding their shame from God. And then they start casting blame on each other. The scene is set up kind of like a court scene. God arrives in the cool evening breezes. The text doesn't really um, indicate the time of day, but one thing it does say is that it was windy. And of course, that's a play on words again because wind and the spirit are the same word in Hebrew and and it really just uh, implicates the fact that, that God is present. All throughout the scriptures, elemental forces represent the presence and the power of God. And it used to be with Adam and Eve that when they heard God coming, when they heard the wind, that was a good sign. But now because of sin and shame, all of a sudden they were fearful And you see that throughout the rest of the scriptures. Consider how God descended on Mount Sinai in smoke and in an earthquake. And consider how he appeared to Job in a whirlwind in a very similar scene where God comes to ask questions of Job. And it's scary. So as God comes and his power is is revealed in, I don't know how windy it was, maybe it was a whirlwind just like Job experienced. But it causes fear because of the shame that came with sin. But humans only need to fear God's presence his holy presence, when they themselves are unholy. Because we can't be in the presence of holy God when we're full of sin. It destroys us. And so when the holy God comes near, we hide in shame and fear. So in this court scene, the judge and the prosecutor, God, asked some questions. First question, where are you? It wasn't because God didn't know. This was actually, I think, an invitation for Adam and Eve to come out of their hiding, admit what they did, and start to work with God to find a solution. Second question, who told you that you were naked? Adam said, we hid because we're naked. Yeah, but who told you that? They didn't even have categories for nakedness and being clothed until they had the fruit. And again, this is, it's, it's not so much, oh my goodness, I didn't realize that. I didn't have, it's not that. It's, a, it's that sense of, of being exposed, that there's something exposed in my life that I don't want people to see. And so God says, who told you that that's even a thing? How is that even possible for you to think that you're naked? Third question, have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? Did you do the one thing I said you shouldn't do? Did you do the one thing I asked you to trust me about and eat this fruit? 
How does Adam reply? It was the woman. Okay, men, let's have a quick, honest conversation here, all right? I know she's not perfect, but we need to stop blaming her. I know every time, this is one of my sins, okay? I'm going to reveal my sins to you. Every time I'm looking for something in the house, my wallet or my keys or a book, and I can't find it, first thought that comes into my mind, the woman moved it. Where did she put my wallet? Why does she move it? I put it where it's supposed to go, and she finds it, and she, oh, here it is, right where I left it. Okay. Every single time. I don't know why I so instantly want to blame the woman in my life for my problems, but immediately Adam blames Eve. And he goes, actually, you know what, God? Um, it's the woman you gave me. So I think this is your, you gave me a defective woman. Let's trade her in for 2.0, and we'll get an upgrade, and we'll just move on, okay? No problem. You know what Adam's doing? He's blaming his blessing. The one thing that God said was not good in the garden was that Adam was alone, so he gave him this incredible blessing, this incredible gift, a helper to work with him in accomplishing the purpose of humanity on this planet, someone to come alongside him and be a blessing in his life, and he blames his blessing, and he blames God. Blame, blame, blame. Blame, not taking any personal responsibility. Then God turns to Eve. What have you done? What's your role in all of this? Eve doesn't blame Adam. Ladies, you tend to stick by your man, even if he's a bum, right? Started in the garden. Instead, she says, the serpent deceived me. More blame, no personal responsibility. Adam doesn't take responsibility. Eve doesn't take responsibility. If we're all honest right now, we so quickly, as soon as we are caught in wrongdoing, one of our first reactions is to figure out who is more responsible than us. Who, who tricked us, who deceived us, who created the circumstances in which we would make a mistake. It's not my fault. Somebody else did this. It's how I was raised. My parents, you know, did it wrong, and so I do it wrong. Or so-and-so should have told me. We always want to blame somebody else rather than take personal responsibility. But you know what that is? It's the serpent taking root in our heart. Satan is called the accuser. He casts blame. It's what he does. He was the first sinner rebelling against God and blaming everyone else and wanting to bring everybody down with him. When we play the blame game, we join Satan's team. The seed of the serpent is in each one of us when we blame each other. Now God speaks to the serpent, then the woman, then the man, in order of who sinned, telling them what's going to happen as a consequence. We pick up in verse 14. Then the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. So the snake, as you know, has, has really become kind of the, the embodiment, the symbol of evil in the world, the symbol of Satan, as I said, and in the book of Revelation, Satan is called that ancient serpent. He slithers silently in the dirt, devours unsuspecting prey. Snakes often have a venomous bite. And, and I don't think we're supposed to think that before this moment, this, the serpent maybe had legs or wings and God snipped them off and said, now you're going to crawl. I, I, I think this is really just a representation of the low status 
of Satan in the world, that he's of the lowest possible status because of his deception, because of his, his selfishness, because of his desire to ruin God's good creation. He has the lowest place in the world, as low as it gets. Nothing, there's nothing lower than an accuser, a blamer, a deceiver, a deceiver, and one who intentionally causes others to sin. Now, the second half of what God says to the serpent, I want to save for a bit later. So let's move on to what he says to Eve. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy, and in pain you will give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. Now, like the serpent stood as a representative for Satan and evil, Eve stands as a representative for women. There's two parts to what God is saying here to Eve. First, firstly, God says her childbearing is going to be impacted. Part of the blessing God gave to humans, he said, be fruitful and multiply. And a big element of that, actually the most direct element of that, was childbearing, that humans were given the capacity, especially women, were given the capacity to multiply, to bear children, to, to make more humans. And the greatest element of Eve's blessing has now become the biggest feature of her curse. Childbearing was at the center of God's blessing. Now it's at the center of her curse. And that just shows how when sin comes into our lives, when sin comes into the world, it warps everything that is good. It takes our greatest blessings. It takes all the good things that God created and perverts them and twists them into something negative. Childbirth is an incredible moment. I obviously can't speak from a mother's experience. So let me just speak from a father's experience. I have never experienced something more transcendent in the physical world than watching my children come in, into life. It's an incredible moment, and, and there's lots of different kinds of families, and I don't want to make anybody feel left out, but it's an incredible thing. I understand why this is a blessing from God. But the amazing thing is that what God does here is he takes this incredible blessing, but he adds a curse to it, and he says, there's actually now going to be pain in this process. There's going to be pain in this process. It's going to be difficult. And before we ask questions like, did God really say that he's responsible for our pain? Which is a very serpenty question. The serpents, or pardon me, the scripture invites us to meditate in moments like these. As you continue to read the scriptures, you actually see that childbirth and the pain in birth is a reminder not only of our folly, but it's also a promise of our great hope. Romans chapter 8, verse 20 to 22, Paul writes, Against its will, all creation was subject to God's curse. So Paul's meditating on Genesis 3. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Here, as Paul's meditating on the curse, particularly the, the addition of birth pains, he's, he's talking about how, yes, childbirth brings extreme pain, and it's very risky for women's health. It, it signifies that things aren't the way they should be. God's original design in the garden does not include pain. But the other thing that the pains of childbirth signify is that new life is about to arrive in the world. There is a promise in pregnancy that is fulfilled in the birth of a child. Something beautiful is being born. Something amazing is happening. And those pains are actually a signal that something is being birthed. 
Verse 18, he said, yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal later. Don't take my word for it. Talk to someone who has had a child, okay? Talk to a woman who's had a child. I've talked to my wife. I've talked to many women about this. They tell me that regardless of all the pain of that process, receiving that child into their arms makes the whole process worth it. I think they're psycho, but they say it's true. And it must be true because so many of you have decided to have more. And that's what Paul's trying to get at here. The pain of the current process is worth it for what is being birthed into the world. So this sign, this curse of pain in childbearing is not just a curse and a reminder of folly, but it's also a reminder that there is hope that something is being born into the world. The second part of Eve's curse in verse 16 says, you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. Simply put, the relationship between Adam and Eve is going to become more challenging. There's going to be a disintegration of relationship between husband and wife, male and female. There's going to be a battle of the sexes and a power struggle in the home. He he says, your desire will be to control your husband. That word desire is used later in chapter 4 when sin is trying to overcome Cain. It's this, it's this sense where sin is going to get in the way of things and, and create a, an, a, an unhealthy power struggle that's going to actually kill and destroy a relationship. And then he, te- he says, but Adam's going to rule over you, which isn't permission for Adam to be domineering. It's actually saying that that's going to be a struggle, that, that Adam is going to dominate, sin, uh, Cain, um, Eve is going to want to control, and there's going to be this, this struggle in the home that shouldn't be there. That's why in the New Testament, wives, you're told to love, you're told to respect your husbands. And husbands, you're told to love your wives because it's pushing back against the, 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 the folly of power struggles in the home. It's pushing back against what sin does to a relationship. Love and respect, love and submission helps bring back a harmonious relationship between husband and wife. Sin's desire is to control us. Eve, your desire will be to control your husband, but he will rule over you. Then God talks to Adam. Verse 17, to the man he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made, for you were made from dust and to dust you will return. So Adam's curse is specifically related to the ground. Remember, Adam was formed from the dust. He was formed from a ball of mud into which God breathed life. And now Adam has said, eventually you're going to go back into that ball of mud with no life in you. And in the meantime, everything is going to get harder. Adam was placed in the Garden of Eden to tend the garden and care for it. It was a a ready-made garden. Adam didn't need to sow. He didn't need to weed. He didn't need to plant. He didn't need to fertilize. He didn't need to do any of that kind of stuff. He was just there as a caretaker. But now God is saying, you're actually going to have to do all the work. You're going to have to sweat to make a living just to put some food on the table. The land is going to fight back. See, part of Adam's blessing was to rule and subdue the earth. That he was in charge, he was going to rule in God's stead. But now as he goes to be that ruler of the earth, the earth is going to fight back and not submit to him. Everything is going to get harder. If you've ever found this where you, you get two things done, but, but three things are broken, 
right? You repair the car and the roof leaks. You plant the flowers and then you've got weeds in your, in your vegetable garden. You, you get things organized at work, but then your home's a disaster or vice versa. There's just always this rebellion against the work of our hands because God said everything is going to get harder as a result of sin in the world. And you know what? This is God's grace as well. When it comes to this curse, how it affects Eve and how it affects Adam, there's, there's lots we can talk about. And it connects to uh, a big theological, philosophical conversation called the problem of evil. We don't have time to get into all of it today, but let me say this. What would have happened if God didn't introduce these curses? If Adam and Eve brought sin into the world... There were already natural consequences to that. Death had entered into the world. Relationships were already broken. Things were disintegrating already. They were, they were going to be corrupted to the core and lose everything that made them glorious bearers of God's image. Why did God have to add all this other stuff? Here's what I think God did. He provided symptoms that allow us to diagnose the disease of sin. Imagine having cancer and no symptoms. Imagine having a life-threatening disease, but nothing in your body manifests the fact that the disease is there. You're just out one day shopping or playing with your kids or working in the garden, and you just drop dead because you were sick, but nobody knew it. The reason our bodies manifest symptoms is to give us information that something is wrong. But if there's no symptoms, we don't have the opportunity and the time to actually seek help from a doctor or seek help from medicine that could actually deal with the deeper disease. The symptoms are not the disease. But the disease is going to kill us if we don't do anything about it. How would the world know it needed a savior if it didn't manifest its need for one? So even in God adding this curse, he's actually showing us his grace because he's saying, I'm going to make sure that you know there's a problem so that you reach out for the Savior that I am going to provide for you. Sin brought a disease into creation, and God has a plan to save us. Let's finish from verse 20 to 24. Then the man, Adam, named his wife Eve, because she would be the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Then the Lord God said, Look, the human beings have become like us, Knowing both good and evil, what if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life, and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden, and he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. They're sent out from the garden. They can no longer eat from the tree of life because if they eat of its fruit, they will physically live forever, but they'll live forever in a sinful state and they'll disintegrate and disintegrate and disintegrate and lose their humanity altogether. So even in this exile, God is showing his grace. He guards the garden with angels and a, and a sword to keep them from getting back in. It's a profoundly sad moment. Exile is a major theme in the Bible which starts here. It's the normal consequence for impurity and sin. Something you once had access to, you are now cut off from because of some sort of impurification. 
Uh, the book of Leviticus outlined regulations that people who were in the Israelite camp while they were in the wilderness, if they became impure for one reason or another, they actually had to go outside the camp for a period of days to do some certain rituals before they could come back in. God sends us out so that we can be cleansed and renewed and be able to come back into his presence. Later in Israel's history, their rebellion led to the whole nation being exiled, taken from the land into the land of, of, of Babylon so that God could cleanse them and change them to bring them back in to the Holy Land once again. There is always grace. There is always grace when God shows up. There is always grace even as God deals with our sin and brings consequences into our life because of sin. No matter what we have done, God desires to show us his grace. Remember how God said, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die? They didn't surely die. Yes, death entered the world, but they didn't just drop dead immediately. What did God do? He gave them grace and gave them time so that they could respond, so they could be purified, so they could be brought back into his presence. God gave them grace and time to orchestrate a plan for redemption. But something did die in the garden. It wasn't Adam and Eve. We're told that God made them clothing out of animal skins. They had made clothing out of, out of leaves for themselves, which wasn't going to last, but God made them nice outfits out of animal skins. What had to die for that to happen? An animal. It's the first account in the Bible of a substitutionary death. Adam and Eve didn't die, but something did in their place. And of course, we see the whole sacrificial system later being built on that. A system whereby people who have been made impure because of sin could be made right with God again. And that system itself, a foreshadowing of the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross on our behalf. I told you I wanted to save a part for later. Verse 15, as God's talking to the serpent, he says, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This has been called the proto-gospel or the first gospel. God preaches good news in the garden right at the moment of sin. I'm going to bring someone into this world through childbearing, through the blessing of multiplication, I'm going to deal with this sin problem. I'm going to deal with this serpent and all of his works in the world. He's going to come into the world, an offspring of Mary, pardon me, well, yes, Mary, an offspring of Eve is going to come into the world and he is going to stomp that serpent. And in the process, he will be injured. His heel will be struck. He will be injured in that process, but he will do away with the devil. He will do away with sin. He will do away with death and bring redemption to all humankind. Galatians 4.4 4 says, When the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman. Offspring of Eve came into the world to bring redemption. That's God's grace. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we could be called the righteousness of God, welcomed back into his presence. So yes, God may have subjected creation to a curse, but it was an expression of his incredible grace designed to draw us back into a relationship with him and save us from our folly. God doesn't affirm sin. God doesn't celebrate sin. God doesn't brush it off like it doesn't matter. He doesn't say, follow your heart, 
find your truth or you do you. He says sin has huge consequences and it's not okay. But there is more grace in than there is sin. There is more grace in God than there is sin in us. He shows extravagant grace, providing a way for us to be brought back into relationship with him. You know, I was meditating on this and we're told that when God came into the garden, Adam and Eve, in their shame, hid among the trees. In their shame, they hid among the trees. That which was meant to bring, bring them life, they hid among the trees. And some of you in this room, and I know in my life I've had times where I have felt shame. But you know what? We don't need to hide from God. But there is a tree that we can run to. And we can take all of our shame because all of it was born on that tree. All of it was taken away by Jesus. It takes all of our shame so that we could be made righteous, we could be made pure, and welcome back into God's presence. So don't run from God, run to the cross. Let Jesus take your shame. See, I think we have three choices when we sin. Choice number one is to just blame. Blame, 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 blame. It's someone else's fault. I didn't do anything wrong. It's someone else's fault. And I know people sin against us, and I know people deceive us, and I know people do wrong, and it, it leads us into sin. But blame is the game of the devil. Jesus took all the blame. We don't need to join the devil's game. Option number two is to run and hide. To assume that God hates you. He's just got nothing but wrath for you. He's going to come and destroy you. He's got nothing but judgment for you. To ask serpenty questions like, why would God do this? Why would God add these things into the world? Why would God not stop this? Or why would God allow that? to hide and run and avoid God. But option number three is to come to Jesus. Let him deal with your shame. To let him give you his righteousness. He's the substitution that took all the sin away and has clothed you with purity and righteousness and holy so that you could come once again to the Father and be embraced by him and have eternal life. Would you pray with me? The band is going to come back up. We thank you, God, for your goodness. Thank you, God, for your extravagant grace. And Lord, while sometimes we struggle with the way the world is, we recognize the pain that is a reality in so many of our lives, we thank you that you have so much grace and so much goodness and so much life for those who come to you, who hide by the cross, to have their shame taken away, and their sin removed, and to receive your life and your blessing and your wholeness. And so God, I pray we would not run from you. We would not slip into the, the game of blame. We would come to Jesus to have our shame removed. If there's anybody here, God, today who has never done that, who has never come to Jesus, maybe they're in the blame game, maybe they've been running and hiding, but they found themselves here today hearing the first good news that you were going to send your son into the world, the offspring of the woman, to stomp the head of that serpent and to bring new life through his own death. God, I pray in Jesus' name that they would put their faith in Jesus, 
They would give their whole self to you, Jesus. They would give you their sin and your shame so that they could be made free and given your righteousness. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.